All right, let's go ahead and bow as we get ready to open the word. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship you in song. Lord, we ask that you be with us now as we deliver the word and that you will show us what we need to see from all of this and that you will be with each person and they will hear what you would have them hear. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're continuing in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Starting at verse 14. These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto you shortly. But if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. All right. So Paul has given his whole reason here for writing the book of Timothy, this letter to Timothy. We call it a book. It was only a letter to Timothy. And his purpose for Timothy was, Timothy, you're a young pastor. You're taking care of this church. And this is how you're supposed to behave as a pastor. And we've talked about this when we looked at this book. This is called a pastoral epistle. There's three pastoral epistles. There's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Now, does that mean we can't get anything from reading these books? Absolutely not, because we should be able to say, I aspire to honor God in the way I live as well. So he's talking to Timothy, and he says, I'm planning to come shortly. Now, as far as we know, Paul never made it to Ephesus to be with Timothy. Timothy went to him in Rome, and, but he was planning to. Have you ever had a time when you planned on doing something and God changed your plans? <laughs> You know, God likes to change our plans frequently. <laughs> uh, in my lifetime, it's happened a lot. I'm planning to do something, and God does sometimes some really strange things to make his plan happen, especially when we are determined to do it our way. Uh, you know, God, I am going to go visit this person, you know, three hours away, and your car breaks down halfway there, <laughs> and you end up going back home and taking care of whatever it is that God wanted you to do there. God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. And God says, no, I want you to do something else. You know, sometimes you might actually even listen <laughs> and do what God tells us to do without all the problems. But, you know, God is going to get his way. It's an amazing thing to me that God always gets his way. He is sovereign. He is in charge. And sometimes we think, well, God, I'm going to do it my way. You know, Paul was thinking this on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians. God's calling him, trying to get his attention. And what happens? He gets a bright light, knocks him off his horse, blinds him, and says, uh, it's hard to go kick against the, the goads, isn't it? And Paul is saying, who are you, Lord? <laughs> yeah. uh, he didn't have much doubt that it was God. He didn't really like the answer when the answer came back, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he had a choice. He could continue disobeying, or he could obey. And as I've said it, no reasonable person in their right mind would have told God who knocked them off their horse, blinded them with the bright light, and was talking to them in the flesh would have said, no, I'm not going to do what you said. Now, if most of us had that kind of an experience with God, we probably would be a little more sure of what we're supposed to be doing. But, you know, God usually speaks to us in a still, small voice that we're supposed to be trying to listen to. But, you know, how often do we get busy? God, I am just so busy. God, I have my plans. I used to live like that. I used to live, I could tell you what I was going to do five months from now because if you just told me what day and what hour it was, I would tell you what I was going to do. 
because I had a schedule that was that specific. <laughs> On this day, at this time, I'm going to be do doing this. Now, I had a few places where there would be fun, and I didn't know exactly what I'd be doing. I just figured that was the time to do fun. <laughs> didn't know what that fun might be that day. But you know, God sometimes has a hard time breaking into those kind of schedules. You know, think about this. Everywhere that Jesus went, he'd be on his way to do something, and God the Father would say, you're going to do this. Okay? Jairus comes along and says, my son's dying. Come and heal him. And on the way there, he stops, and he heals the woman with the issue of blood and talks to her for a while. Can you picture how upset Jairus would have been in the middle of all of this? Uh, Jesus, my son's dying. What are, you, what are you standing here talking to this, this person for? You know, you, you are on your way with me. Do we ever get that way with God ourselves? God, I've got to get over here to see this person, and you've got me talking to this person. Or, worse yet, you get to the end of the day and go, God, you didn't give me anybody to talk to. And God says, well, what about this person you walked past, and this person you walked past, and this person you ignored? Hopefully you haven't had too many of those days. I've had those. You know, and I've already shared with you, oftentimes I'm really slow. I think about what I should have said or should have done about three hours after, afterwards. You know, sometimes I don't listen to God as well. You know, God, what should I have done? He says, well, you should have been talking to this person. You should have been doing this. Many times we need to slow down and just start listening for God. What do you want me to do, God? You know, and Paul is here saying, I'm planning to come there, hopefully. He goes, but if I take a while... If I tarry long, that you should know what to do. Do you realize that when the disciples were walking around preaching the gospel, Jesus had told them, I'm coming back soon. Do you realize that all the apostles thought that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime? All of them did. It wasn't until they started getting older that they realized, well, we might want to write down these stories about who Jesus is and what he said. You know, Mark didn't write his book, and he's the first gospel, until about 60 A.D., 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He wrote his story, probably thinking, uh, well, we need to tell this, you know, because we're all getting old. We're, you know, people are dying. James has been killed. The Roman government is trying to kill us. If we don't write down the story, nobody's going to know it. And remember, Mark was not one of the eyewitnesses. Mark is Barnabas's kin. He got the story from Peter, and he wrote it down. And, you know, and he really tried to protect Peter. You know, he very rarely, when Peter did dumb things, he told the story of the dumb thing Peter did, but didn't really tell you that it was Peter who did it. <laughs> we don't know that it's Peter until we start reading Matthew, John, and Luke. Now, they weren't trying to protect Peter. <laughs> Yeah. How many of us tell stories, uh, or you listen to somebody tell a story, and they try to protect their stupidity in the story? <laughs> you, know, you listen to the story, especially if you know the story. You know, you know that they said something that set off the person, but you know, all they tell you is how angry the person was at them. They didn't tell you about what they said that made the person mad. You know, I had many times in conflict res resolution where I would go, man, that person did that? For no reason, whatever? <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they, there was nothing that happened. Then you hear the other side of the story, and they don't tell you about how they reacted. They just tell you what set them off. So you can actually start putting things back together. And, you know, we need to be careful about even this. When we start talking to people, you know, I've got a secret for all of you. 
we're all sinners. <laughs> we all do things that will irritate people. All of us. You know, how many times have I heard, well, you know, I just can't stand so-and-so because they do this, that, or the other thing. I'm going, well, you know what? They're probably saying the same thing about you. <laughs> you know, well, I don't like when somebody does that. They're probably saying, well, I don't like when you do <laughs> something. Which is why we're told to love one another, to build one another up, to edify one another. You know, if we spend more time just building one another and edifying one another up, you know how fast those things that irritate you can start going away? You know, when you're angry at somebody, what do you do? You talk about them, and you talk about them, and you talk about them, and you build the story. And the sad thing is, usually by the time you told the story five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, boy, that story has exploded. <laughs> New points get added that probably never even happened. I mean, you're not necessarily lying. In your mind, they've all of a sudden happened. You've, you've played this story over in your, in your mind, and you've, you've increased it. You've added to it. And you're now mad at that person for things they haven't even done, said, or did. <laughs> what if you were to start talking kindly about that person? You know, what kind of kindness could it be? Don't lie about what it is, but you know, how great is it that somebody comes to church every Sunday? You, know, you might not really like that person, but they're there every Sunday. You know, I'm really glad. I really like the way you're faithful at church. I really like the input you made in the Sunday school class when you talk about the Bible. Maybe don't like you, but I like the input you put in. <laughs> you know, don't, don't add that little part, but you stick with the positive. You know, but you know, if we start edifying and building people up in honest ways, how's that going to change the re way we treat each other? How would it change the way we treat our neighbors and our family? If we start looking at how can I build this person up? How can I say positive things about them? And this isn't positive thinking. It is just how God has wired us. If we start conquering our evil tendencies by being good, it'll change who we are. We speak kindness. We speak love. You know, we have this idea of overcoming evil with good. It's really not that hard. The hardest part is finding the good to talk about, to love with. How many people have gotten divorces or had problems in their family because they, all they do is concentrate on the bad? They forget why they came together in the first place. You know, I loved you and I got married to you and now I don't like you anymore. Because all I think about is all the bad things that you keep doing and they irritate me. Start, start looking at the good. As we come together as a church, we're going to irritate one another. Because we're not all the same. We have some people with very high levels of Bible knowledge. We have some people with low levels of Bible knowledge. We have some people with fairly high levels of obedience to God and some people with, with very little obedience to God. And you know what? We all have that problem in various areas. Where I may be strong, I may be weak in some area that somebody else is strong. And you know, those irritate us. Especially if it took us a long time to get victory in that area. And we look at somebody who's not gotten victory in that area. And we go, what's wrong with you? You know, I've, I've been following God for 40 years. How come you're not where I am? And we laugh, but you know, we do that a lot if we're not careful. You know, how many times have you listened to somebody who is a brand new Christian and they do a lot of swearing and cursing and everything because they don't know better yet? And you're judging them like, how can you do that? Why are you doing that? Don't you know that God doesn't want you doing that? And they're probably looking at you and going, I don't know how to speak any other way. 
By the same token, how many times do we speak in Christian jargon? <laughs> oh, God loves you. you know, and in our, in our mind, we're going, I can't stand you, but God loves you. <laughs> You know, we, we say the right words, we do the right things. But man, if we were just saying, if you just knew, you know, if I could just do what I wanted to do. Now, Jesus called that sin. You know, he said, if you look lustfully on, a, on another person, you've committed adultery. If you're angry with a brother without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. You know, so you really want to get up there and say what is, what is wrong and what's right? None of us have a pure standing before God. Because I'll tell you one thing, it's fairly easy to get rid of the actions, isn't it? If you've walked with God long enough, it's pretty easy to get rid of actions. It's much harder to control your thoughts, which is why Paul tells us to put every thought into captivity, every thought into captivity to the word of God. So we're looking in here, and Paul's saying, I want to come soon. Hopefully I'm coming soon. Why did Paul have this? Well, he started the church at Ephesus. He wanted to come back and see them. Have you ever wanted to go home to some place that you left, especially people who've moved a lot? You know, one of the crazy things is, is when you try to go back, you'll find that everything's different anyway, and it's no longer the same place that you left. Maybe you've outgrown it. Maybe they've outgrown you, whichever way it might be. You go back uh, and see this town that you remember as a little tiny town 40 years ago, and, and now it's swallowed up by the next bigger town. I had an experience a couple of years ago when I went up to Willows for, for Thanksgiving. I drove through Sacramento and the little towns where I had worked and, and been around, and all of them were part of Sacramento. <laughs> you know, there wasn't a separation at all between them. Drove down, showed the kids where we used to live, and it was a run-down neighborhood. <laughs> it wasn't a great neighborhood when we lived there, but now it was a really run-down place. You know, we cannot return back. As Christians, we cannot return back to the world and be happy for two reasons. Number one, the world looks at us and says, well, you're not part of us. You're, you're one of those crazy Christians. And as we're trying to behave in our, in our old lifestyle, the Holy Spirit's telling us, what are you doing here? This is not who you are. So you're not happy on either side. The people aren't accepting you, and you're not being, being happy. And you're sitting there trying to go back to an old sin that you think used to be good, but when you were in the middle of it, you knew it wasn't good, and it led you to Christ in the first place. You know, we need to be careful. Go forward with God, because there really is no going backwards. And you know what? There is no standing still. You are either going forward with God, or you're slipping into the world. How do we end up changing? We spend time with God. We spend time with him in prayer. We spend time with him in the word. We spend time talking with one another about Jesus. Have you ever taken time with somebody outside of church and talked to him about what God has shown you in his word? And I know there are some people in here that do that. <laughs> what a wonderful experience that is to just share. Look what God has shown me. My hope for our church is that at some point we start just Meeting at the post office. Have a Bible study at the post office. You know, might drive some people in crown crazy, but have a Bible study at the post office. Talk about what God is showing you. you know, talk to people and let them know this is what God's done. Now, they might think we're a little crazy, but they think that anyway. It doesn't really matter. People think that Christians are crazy anyway. So why don't we prove it? <laughs> I'm crazy enough to talk about him <laughs> to anybody. 
I, you know, when I was a restaurant manager, I used to talk to people all the time. They'd come, you know what God did for me yesterday? And I could just look in their eyes and they'd go, oh, he's going to tell us about God again. He's going to tell us about how God gave him a blessing or how God did something. I treated him like I would other Christians. <laughs> that led eventually to some questions. You know, but who are we around other people? If we're not around Christians, do we stay quiet about God? Or is he so important to us that out of the abundance of our heart, we speak? You all know that if you stay, spend any time with me, we're going to talk about God at some point. Because I love talking about God. Always have. Even before I became a pastor, I love talking about God. Bringing him up. Talking about what he's done. Talking about what I've seen in the Bible. I'm hoping that when you read the Bible each morning, each day, you're finding something in there that's for that day. You know, I do all the time. All right, God, oh, wow, how's this verse going to apply to their life today, God? And you go, and you find out exactly how it applies. Do you share that with other people? You know what God did yesterday? <laughs> I read this verse, and this is how he taught me to love these people. This is how he taught me to be forgiving. This is how I saw and understood what was happening. Have you ever seen times when you know somebody's trying to manipulate you? You know, happens a lot to me. May not know why, but there's this alarm bell in the back of my mind that goes, walk with caution. Walk with caution. The Holy Spirit is talking. And you go along and all of a sudden you find out another one of those secrets. The Holy Spirit knows what he's talking about. <laughs> When he tells you things, he knows what he's talking about. When you're reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit says, this is what this verse means, you know, he wrote the book, he knows what it means. <laughs> okay? Be aware, be listening to those words. And then he goes on to say that how you should behave in the house of God. How you should behave when you're in the church building, in the group. You know, we have a way that we're supposed to live. Now, I will add to this, I don't believe it's only in this building we should behave the way that we think God wants us to do. It should be everywhere we go. But then he goes even beyond that and he says, which is the church of the living God? Now, we are in this building and we tend to call it the church. I got news for you, this building is not the church. This building is where the church meets. We are the church. The Greek word is ecclesia. It is the called out ones. And literally it was the called out citizens to an assembly together. If we are Christians, we are citizens of kingdom, of God's kingdom, let's get that right. <laughs> not this world. And God says, my church, I want to call you out. I want to call you out to meet together. What is the purpose of coming together as a church? Well, in my opinion, it is to do just what we're doing. Teach the church how to follow God. Then the church goes out, lives the way God says to live in front of the world, teaching the world, and bringing the world to Christ. Now, there is another definition of church, and the definition, the, another definition of church, and many churches do this, is the church is the place where you gather all the sinners together and evangelize them. And 
it's a valid. There's many churches that do that. I don't believe in that. <laughs> I believe our job is to teach the church to be able to go out. Now, I'm not going to say I'm not going to evangelize, and you all know if you come here, you're going to hear the gospel message as well. But my primary job is to teach us to go out and share. And we do a lot of Bible studies just for that reason. This is how God wants us to live. This is what the gospel is. And we've shared the gospel to you. The gospel is so simple. We are all sinners. <laughs> we deserve punishment. Jesus came and died for our sins, was died, buried, and resurrected in victory. And if we accept his free gift, he comes and indwells us. That's a message anybody can give to anybody. I hear people go, well, I just don't know how to share the gospel. How hard is it? I don't hear people go, how do you share the gospel with a Muslim? We're sinners. We deserve punishment. Jesus died for us. Accept him. How do I share Jesus with a Hindu? We're all sinners. <laughs> we deserve punishment. Jesus died for us. We, and we accept him. Why is it the same for everybody else? Because I don't care to argue what they believe. I learned the hard way that trying to argue somebody out of their beliefs does not work. Okay? We need to be able to share the gospel with people, let God get into their heart, and you know what? He'll change them. He'll change them. How do I reach a drunken person about the gospel? Same gospel message. Let God get in them, and he'll change who they are. You know, pick your sin. It doesn't really matter. So many times in the church we'll go, well, when this person becomes good enough, to, I'll talk to them. Well, number one, they're probably never going to be good enough. And the bigger question I have, were, were you good enough when, the per when somebody shared the gospel with you? At whatever age or time you were, were you good enough when you had the gospel shared with you? I'm going to tell you no, no matter what age, no matter what you were doing, you were not good enough. One sin is all it talks. And, G and Paul is saying, the church. The church. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. What do I say? You meet up at the post office and two or three of you gather together. You know what? You've got church. Or can. Two or three believers have gathered together. Jesus is there. And you don't need to be preaching or singing, but you know, are you going to lift up Jesus? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. This is the important thing. I'm not going to lift up a whole bunch of rules. I'm not going to lift up a whole bunch of requirements. Because rules and requirements won't get you to heaven. Rules and requirements might even be bad for you because you might think that you're going to heaven because you are following rules and requirements. And there are a lot of churches that will give you a lot of rules and requirements. Will we be obedient to the rules and requirements as we grow? Absolutely. God will change us, and we will become more and more obedient to what he wants. Not because I'm trying to, to earn heaven. Not because it's the best thing. But sin has consequence, and if I avoid sin, I avoid a lot of consequence in my life. And I hope all of you know that sin has consequence. You do something wrong, and there are consequences for it. Always. And the consequences are always worse than you think they're going to be. Always. You know, well, God, I think that this will be the consequence that I think I can pay for this, so I'm going to go ahead and do this sin. And you find out you didn't even know half of what was going to happen. 
People will say, well, I can sin and nobody's going to have a problem with it. Do you realize that no sin affects only you? All sin affects somebody else and usually many somebody else's. Okay? You know, the drunk person who goes out and decides to drink and drive, getting into, if nothing else, even an accident, you know, well, they've had a lot of problems. Uh, they're going to hurt the insurance company. They're going to hurt their family who now has to go wake up in the middle of the night to go get them and you know, go right down the list of all the different people who get hurt. And this is if they don't hurt somebody else. You know, there's always consequences. If you tell a lie, you're, you're harming other people by that lie. Number one, you're hurting their trust. You know, there's always consequences for every sin, and there are always greater consequences than we can even imagine. Now the church, we, we look at this in Matthew 16, 18, it says God says, or Jesus says, I build my house. You realize that my job's the easiest thing in the world. I don't have to build this church because God builds this church. I, I just do the fun thing. I get to teach. <laughs> I get to teach. And God builds the house. And the second half of that verse says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, think about this. I know, I, I know a lot of people teach that the gates of hell are the attacking uh, part of the, the church. But you know one thing? I've never seen a gate move. I have never seen anybody carrying a gate into battle and using gates as a weapon. <laughs> Satan cannot prevail against the church when the church moves. His strongholds cannot prevail against the church when we move. Do you realize that we are victorious because we have a victorious God? When you share the gospel, when you talk to people about Jesus, you're engaging in something that is so wonderful. You may go, well, I don't know how to speak. It doesn't matter. God says that his word does not return void. You know, and I shared, when we did the evangelism class, I shared, you know, a lot of times you'll listen to somebody's testimony and they met some nutty Christian telling them about God and the gospel that afternoon and they're laying in bed. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit starts talking to them and go, what if that person was right? Sometimes these people do not get saved when you're talking to them. Most of the time they don't get saved when you're talking to them. But they're in bed going, what if that person's right? Is there an afterlife? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? How do I get to heaven? I always thought I was good enough, but this really crazy person told me I can't be good enough. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the gospel of Christ. God says, I'm going to build my church. In Acts 2, 4, it says that God added daily to the church those that he planned on. You know, our fun thing is just to tell the gospel and God adds the church. He adds to the church. You know, our job is simple as Christians. Lift Jesus up. You know, and I've shared with you, I love to see a big church. I would love to see this church filled all the time. If God wants to do that, he'll do that. But you know, I'm more concerned with building God's kingdom. If he gets blessed, then that's all that really matters. When we put these messages out on the internet and people listen to them and we don't know what's happening out there, there's a blessing. We'll find out in heaven what's happening with all these messages. But you know, I tell a lot of people, you know, pastors, well, how are you doing? I'm going, I've got a wonderful church. We've got about 25 people that come out each Sunday, and they're all growing. And he goes, is that all? I go, well, I do have a large church. I just don't know who they are. You know, uh, 
you know, we talk about this, you know, we have been running six to 8,000 people listening to the messages every month, and last month we almost had 10,000. Do you realize what a blessing that is? And it's going to go to all of us. You know, as I keep saying, I get the pleasure of being the one that gets the voice out there. But if you all didn't give and say, yes, we're going to continue doing the website, then we wouldn't have the blessings. We all have a part of the, in the church of that. What's God doing? Sometimes I wish I knew. <laughs> you know, but you know, in heaven, we'll find out what it is he's doing. We're building the kingdom somewhere. Somewhere out there, we're building the kingdom. And then the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, there are a lot of people who seem to think that the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. I'm going to tell you, I don't believe that. Yes, we teach the truth. Yes, we teach, and yes, we try to ground people. I believe the precedent of that is God, the living God, who is the pillar and the grounding of the truth. Not the church. You know, that, that goes into the same thing when, Peter said, when Jesus said, who do men say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus said, upon this truth, I will build my church. And people go, well, it was Peter. No, it wasn't Peter. It was the truth. <laughs> Jesus is the Messiah. The living God is the only pillar and strength of truth. What is truth? Oh, we live in a day in a world that says there is no absolute truth. Now, I love that statement. I used to have so much fun in, the, you know, in my second degree in college when people go, well, you know there's no absolute truth. And I go, are you absolutely sure? And they go, what? I go, you just made an absolute statement that there is no absolute truth. So if there is no absolute truth, your absolute statement is wrong. <laughs> I go, oh, uh, uh. Most people don't think about what they say when they're coming against you. I'm going to tell you that there must be absolute truth in this world. Must. The question is, what is it? Now, I've only been studying this book for a short time, 48 years. <laughs> Just a short time. It's absolute truth. No contradictions, no problems with it. There are things hard to understand. Okay, Some things very hard to understand. But you know, it's kind of amazing. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll listen on the news, and they go, so-and-so at such-and-such place has just discovered you know, something, and they go, I'm going, well, you could have saved yourself millions of dollars and a lot of research time by going to God's word because they just quoted God's word, not even realizing it. His word is truth. You want to stand on his word? Stand on it. It's been an amazing thing to see God's truth work out over the years. You know, I was a creationist long before we had all these, you know, all wonderful sites to be able to look up and read books and everything. I still believed in creationism because I believed God said the truth. Okay. Now, all kinds of wonderful books and scientific studies and proofs that creationism is a better plan than the world's view of evolution. You know, evolution is a pretty crazy view when you think about it. It's unscientific, unmathematical, unprobable, uh, illogical, and it defies science. And yet there's so many scientists who believe it. We know that life doesn't spring up from nothing, and yet if you're an evolutionist, you must believe that life springs up from nothing. You know, how many times do people out there believe things that are crazy? 
it was amazing, you know, to point out to people how contradictory some of their statements were. You know, if you don't like, no, don't haven't known me. I love doing that kind of stuff to people. I love that thing in the colleges. I love to just sit around when I was in college and talk to the different people. You know, because they thought I was just crazy Christian. They could easily, easily tell me that I was wrong. I left them kind of twisted around a little bit. Now that they didn't always believe me. They thought I was a nut. They didn't know what they felt. I didn't know what I was talking about. But we need to stand on truth. And then Paul in verse 16, for with, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, it's kind of interesting. Without controversy, you know, great is the mystery. You know, he said it's persuadable. I love talking about God's word. It is true. One thing about truth is if you're telling the truth, you don't have to worry about being tripped up. The truth always stands up on its own. God's word is not afraid of scrutiny. It's not afraid of honest investigation. Most recent one that's come famous on that is Lee Strobel. Okay, he's the newest, biggest apologist out there. Why did he start trying to, to become, why did he become a Christian? Because he was trying to prove that the Bible and Christianity was all wrong to his wife. And the more he researched, and he said he researched it for three years, and came to the conclusion that it had to be right. My day and age growing up was Josh McDowell. Some of you may know him. He wrote evidence that demands a, a, a verdict. And he started out with all these crazy Christians telling him about how God's word was true. So he was out to disprove God's word. Disproved that there was ever a Jesus Christ who died and was resurrected and found out it was true. We can keep going back and back and back. The great apologists of this world have all come down to this, usually starting out with the idea, I'm going to disprove God's word. I'm going to, I'm going to prove to these crazy Christians that they're wrong. And come to the fact that it is true. So much of what we're, we're, we're bombarded with as truth, we find out is lie. What was the very first lie told? You will not surely die if you eat of that fruit. God is trying to keep you from being like him. And Eve bought into the lie. Satan has lied from the very beginning. He still lies to this day. He's had a lot of practice at lying. He is a very good liar. The only way we can hold on to it is by knowing the truth better than that. If you know the truth, you will not fall into the deceptions. The problem we fall into deceptions is when we don't know the truth in that area. Well, you could get away with this. You know, there's nothing in the Bible about this. If you start thinking there's nothing in the Bible about something, get your concordances out. Get to talk to somebody. Because we share all the time. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. All right? In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man. When Satan comes around and he says, you know, you must really be an awful person because, you know, if you were really a follower of God, you wouldn't have this problem because nobody's ever had that, that temptation in their life. When you start thinking that way, tell yourself or the devil or whatever, that's a lie. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Now, it may come at you in a different way, 
Now, we've got all kinds of temptations that come in a different way. In the biblical day, they had pornography just like we do. The only problem is you had to go see it. Nowadays, you just turn your computer on and you can see all the pornography you want. A few years ago, you used to be able to, you had to go down to the stores and buy the magazine or go to the movies or whatever. You know, same problem, different distribution system. You know, now we have trouble with lying. You know, how many people are telling us it's okay to lie? It's okay not to tell the whole truth. You know, God's definition of truth is to tell the whole truth. In Deuteronomy, he says, if you don't tell everybody what you know, you're lying. Our promise in the courts is, I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But if you've ever talked to a lawyer, they say, answer the question that's asked and nothing more. So you're going to swear to tell the truth, and your lawyer's telling you to not tell the truth according to what you promised. The, the, the court is swearing us in according to God's standard, and yet we're told not to follow God's standard. That's what the world tells us. Every place we're at, the world will say, well, you know, that standard is just, it's, it's really good, but. Be careful when you hear that but. You know, we share that all the time. In the Bible, when you're studying, I love the word but because it means something is changing. Whether good or bad, I don't know sometimes. But we need to be aware. When you're hearing something in the back of your mind saying, well, that's a really good idea, but you're being lied to or getting ready to hear a lie. We're building a lie in your own mind. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus became flesh. Why did he become flesh? Because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay. Jesus became flesh. He was the God-man. 100% man, 100% God. Wasn't 50-50? And I go like, you know, I'm a mathematician. It drives me nuts that he was 100% of each. <laughs> okay. But he was, he did not stop being God when he became man, and he did not stop being, was not man just because he was God. He is the only way because it's, he's the only one that could do it. Then it says, justified in the spirit. Now, we've talked about this at several times. There's three parts of salvation that we go through. When we become a Christian, God justifies us. He says we're perfect. Now, I'm sure everybody in this room knows that we're all perfect. You know, but in one sense, yes, we are. God says we are. How can he say we are? Because he sees us as we will be. We've talked about this. God does not look at time the way we do. He says, this is my child. They're perfect. <laughs> and he's looking however far down the road he has to look to when we finally get glorified. We spend our time on this world being sanctified, being made perfect. Bad news is we'll never be made perfect while we live. <laughs> we have that much sin in our heart. And those of you who have been a Christian for, for a while, do you, have you really seen this? Every time you get these sins out of your way and you, you kind of get this idea, okay, God, I finally arrived, and he shows you a little more sin to deal with. Just a little more. Shines a little brighter light in your life. You know, starts with just a little candle and keeps moving it up until you got this great big lighthouse shining into your light, and you're saying, ew, what a mess down here. 
but we are justified. When Satan attacks you and says that you're a worthless example of a Christian, you say, yes, you're right, but God says I'm perfect and I'm going to go to heaven because of the grace of God. Don't let Satan defeat you because of who you think you are. We've said this before. So often, Satan will come to us with a lot of facts. Well, you know, if you hadn't, you know, look at how you acted yesterday. You said this. You did this. Agree with him. Yes, you're absolutely true. But let me tell you some truth. Jesus has covered me with his blood. That sin is gone. I'm going to heaven because of the blood of Christ. Do you understand the power of the blood of Christ? Our sins are forgiven. They are covered. God says he forgets them. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. And if you try to keep going east, you'll never start going west. All right? Now, if you go north and south, you can start going the other direction. I'm glad God said that it's as far as the east is from the west and not as far as the north is from the south. Because you can never start going the other direction. But you keep going. He says, I've separated them by an infinite amount. We need to understand who we are in Christ. We are forgiven. We are forgiven, and we need to be able to forgive ourselves. We need to be able to forgive others. If we truly understand that we're forgiven and that others that are in Christ Jesus are forgiven, would that change the way we treat each other? Hopefully. God, you have forgiven me so much, and that person is a believer in you. They've been forgiven also. might change the way we look at each other. He says, the angels saw him. And then the good news for us, he was preached to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. Okay, for 2,000 years before Jesus came, the gospel was preached to the Jews. In the Pentateuch, God told them, we're going to build this temple, you're going to offer sacrifices, and I'm going to give you rules for how to worship me, and it's for you and the strangers, meaning us as Gentiles. And the Jews made all kinds of rules saying the Gentiles couldn't come in and offer because they were the special. (laughs) They were the special ones. We need to be careful as Christians that we don't get this idea that we're special. Well, I can't talk to that person. They're they're a sinner. Well, so are we. So were we especially before we became saved. But you know, even after we're saved, we're still sinners. We're redeemed and sanctified sinners, but we're still sinners. We need to reach out to those that are having a hard time and need in need of redemption. And then he said, believed on in the world and received up into glory. Jesus died on the cross. And we're not going to go into all the things facts of it, but he died on the cross, and the Bible is very clear, history is very clear, he died. And three days later, he arose just as he said he would. Now, now that is the amazing thing. He told people, you know, we talk about this. The disciples were told over and over and over and over and over again, I'm going to die. And when he died, they were amazed. Uh, how could he have died? And before we get too judgmental on them, how many times has God told us something over and over and over and over again, and we get amazed that we fall into that sin or we fall into that trap or we make the mistake? And then he rose from the dead. And he was taken up into heaven. And the Holy Spirit came and gave us the verse that we're working on right now. 
go and preach the gospel unto all of Jerusalem, Samaria, uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Where to go? Why? Because that's what Jesus told us to do. Most people read that verse and say, well, it's a good suggestion. We should do that. Oh, got news for you. It's a command. <laughs> well, I'm not very good at it. Doesn't matter. God said do it. How do you get good at anything that you do? You, you keep doing it, right? How many of you remember when you first started driving a car? Especially back in the old days when we had clutches that were the only cars you could drive. And you're going, okay, depress the clutch, release it, push the gas. Uh, and how many times did you stall the car out? Okay. After a while, you're not even thinking about it. You're just driving the car, pushing the clutch down, you know, letting it back up. You know. Now, some of us probably should think more as we're driving than we do. <laughs> But you know, when you first start driving, it's all, okay, got to do this. There's mirrors, you know, and all over the place. After a while, you stop even paying attention to that. If you play sports, you know, how hard was it to shoot that first basket? You know, if you started small enough, you couldn't even reach the basket. But <laughs> let's say you started at an older age and, you know, how hard was it to get that basket? Stop that ball from, that was being hit to you off the bat and being, being able to stop it. Be able to tackle somebody. Let's go, let's take it out of my, that realm and tell, say you're cooking. Okay. How many, how many people had a disaster the first time they baked a cake or cookies? <laughs> my sister baked a cake for us one time and she forgot the baking powder. <laughs> oh, no. It was a wonderful cake. <laughs> Flat and hard. <laughs> yeah. But she learned from that. Yeah. And I say that and everybody laughs because they probably had baked a cake or cookies and forgot the baking powder or the baking soda at least once. Uh, we learn things. How do we learn it? Through practice. How do I learn to speak the gospel to others? I practice. When I was in the restaurant business, I used to teach wait, waiter, waiters and waitresses how to serve tables. And it was pretty good. You'd, you'd show them how they watched you. You'd be with them to help correct their mistakes. But you know, at some point, that person has to go out and take care of the table by themselves. <laughs> And I can tell you, sometimes it came up with some very comical <laughs> issues. Now, the customer may not have thought they were so comical sometimes. But you know, you could fix those. You, you would correct them. But you know, I can guarantee you're going to make mistakes. When you share the gospel, you're going to make mistakes. When you live, you're going to make mistakes. Anybody who tells you you're not going to make mistakes is lying to you. And you know, we learn by the mistakes we can, that we make. And they should encourage us. Because the greatest thing is, I tried. You know, very few people ever got on a two-wheeled bicycle and rode the very first time they jumped on the bike. You know, I've trained a couple of my kids how to ride a bike. Watched them fall several times. <laughs> I don't really remember learning to ride a bike myself, but you know, I'm sure I fell a number of times when I was learning to ride the bike. I'm like everybody else. I didn't just jump on a bike and ride it, I'm sure. But you know, we learn. We fall flat on our face. You encourage somebody, I'd like you to teach this class. Never taught a class in my life. I can't do that. Well, why don't you give it a shot? <laughs> you might find you're good at it. You might find that you're not good at it. <laughs> Who knows? But when it comes to sharing the gospel, you know, I know there are people that are especially gifted at giving out the gospel. They're, they're kind of scary to watch, especially if you try to compare yourself to them. You know, 
I've shared with you, I went out to lunch one time with, a, with an evangelist, a true evangelist. He shared the gospel with everybody. And he wasn't obnoxious. If I tried to share the gospel with everybody, I would have been obnoxious and had everybody mad at me. He had everybody listening to him and appreciating it. I just share the gospel and I stumble through it and do the best I can and make mistakes, as every one of us do. Now, I've been doing it for a few years. I don't make as many mistakes as, as I used to. But you know, are we willing to step forward with God? How are we going to be willing to step forward with God? Very important for us to look at this and see how we're going to go. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this. Lord, we ask you to help each one of us learn how to walk with you, how to follow you, how to be willing to step forward. Lord, if there's anybody listening to this message that doesn't know you, we ask that they will commit their life to you. They will confess that they're a sinner and say, I need you, Jesus, come into my life, and that they will contact a Christian, this church, whoever, and say that they are a new follower of Christ. Lord, for those in this room that are a follower, we ask that you give them the courage and the ambition to step out and make mistakes and grow, knowing that you're not going to judge for those mistakes and that you're not going to penalize for those mistakes, that you love us enough to care. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.